0: This is Listen to the Editors, a series of interviews with journal editors to unveil the trends in research for operations and supply chain management. I'm your host, Yuri Gavronsky. I'm interviewing today the Editor-in-Chief for the Academy of Management Review, Jay Barney. Jay Barney is a Presidential Professor of Strategic Management and the Pierre Lassonde Chair of Social Entrepreneurship at the University of Utah, David Eccles School of Business. He previously served as a Professor of Management and held the to chase share for excellence in corporate strategy at the Ohio State University Max M. Fisher College of Business. His research focuses on the relationship between costly-to-copy firm skills and capabilities and sustained competitive advantage. He has researched the actions entrepreneurs take to form the opportunities they try to exploit. He has served as an officer of both the business policy and strategy divisions of the Academy of Management and the Strategic Management Society and has served as an associate editor at the Journal of Management, senior editor for the organizational science, and co-editor at the Strategic Entrepreneurship Journal. His work has been published in numerous leading outlets, including the Strategic Management Journal, the Academy of Management Review, the Academy of Management Journal, Management Science, and is among the most cited work in the fields of strategic management and entrepreneurship. In addition to his teaching and research, he presents executive training programs throughout the U.S. and Europe and consults with firms on large-scale organizational change and strategic analysis. Dr. Jay Barney is an SMS Fellow, as well as a Fellow of the Academy of Management. He has received honorary doctorate degrees from the University of Lund in Sweden, the Copenhagen Business School, and Universidad Pontificia Comillas in Spain, and has had honorary visiting professor positions in New Zealand, the UK, and China. Good afternoon, Jay. Thanks for joining us today. I appreciate that. Glad to do it. How do you read the mission of the Academy of Management Review?
1: So uh, the mission of the Academy of Management Review is we're one of a portfolio of journals that are uh, managed by the Academy of Management. The two flagship journals are uh, AMJ, the Academy of Management Journal, which focuses primarily on empirical research, uh, making theoretical contributions, writing papers that make theoretical contributions through testing or extending theory. And the second is the Academy of Management Review, the um, journal of which I'm the editor-in-chief, its primary mission is to extend and create new management theory, and so our, our papers are theoretical papers. The journal, the, uh, journal portfolio also includes uh, a journal that focuses on uh, literature reviews, that's Academy of Management Annals, a journal that focuses on early stage Discovery of empirical phenomena, that's the Academy of Management Discoveries. Uh, a journal that focuses on essays as opposed to, uh, to traditional papers, that's the Academy of Management Perspectives. And then the Academy of Management Learning and Education Journal, its mission is, is pretty well defined by its title. So, um, but the two, the two that are sort of the core uh, flagship journals, I think most people would agree, would be AMR with its emphasis on theory and theory development, and AMJ, which is with its emphasis on theory testing and extending theory that way.
0: Did this mission change since the foundation of the
1: journal? Certainly some of the uh, elements of the mission in practice have evolved, but the core emphasis on um, theory and theory development has not changed. For example, it used to be that AMR actually published literature reviews, Uh, But we don't do that anymore. That's now done by the Academy Management Annals. And so, um, and I still get, you know, probably 10% of the papers I receive are essentially literature reviews. And we politely reject those and and suggest that they might want to think about proposing those reviews for the Academy Management Annals or some other outlet that focuses on reviews. Uh, Some other things have changed. For example, we don't do book reviews anymore. Um. We do uh, what are called review essays, where um, authors will gather two or three books on a similar topic and then try to deduce uh, a central theme across those multiple books uh, to see what implications they might have for management theory. And so what we've made so there's always changes on the margin, but the core emphasis on theory and theory development hasn't changed.
0: How many issues per year do you publish?
1: We publish four issues per year, I mean, prox- approximately 34 papers, uh, regular papers for issue per, uh, per year. Uh, in addition to that, we have each issue has uh, uh, um, often has a from the editor's essay by one of the editors. Sometimes there'll be the presidential addresses of published AMR. Uh, we have a, a paper that is published by the Decade Award winner. This is the Paper that has received the most published in AMR that's received the most citations in the previous decade. Um, We also have dialogue sections where people publish um, responses to published papers, and then there's a dialogue, a discussion, and the review essays that I just mentioned. But we it's four issues a year and approximately 34 uh, regular papers per. uh, per year. So, and what is your current
0: submission levels? How many papers do you get per year?
1: We're getting around 500 or so. Uh, it ranges from um, um, 460 to 520, 540, so uh, over the time. So, if you look at the history, it's around in the 500 range. That doesn't include um, the review, uh, it doesn't include the, um, the from the editors and those other kinds of papers. They're not really, they're really don't go through the traditional review process. They're um, they, they're invited papers. They're invited papers. But but the invited papers, it's roughly 500 is how we say it. And that would be roughly 7%
0: acceptance rate?
1: Yeah, or yeah something like that. We're in that range. Um, it, again, varies. I think um, um, our acceptance rate, in, uh, since I've been the editor, has been actually quite low uh, in the 1% to 2% range. I think priors have been uh, somewhat higher. I don't know the actual numbers, though. Um, um.
0: What's the breakdown of those rejections per
1: stage? I mean,
0: uh, how many do you reject? How many are rejected right away
1: by the associate editor and during the first round? Give me an idea, please. Great questions. The, the the papers all come to me. Well, first they go to the AOM staff. Irina Burns uh, does magic things with them. I'm not sure what she does, but it, it makes my job possible. That's for sure. Then it comes to me, and um, and I just reject 25% of the papers just immediately because they don't meet uh, AMR publication guidelines. They violate policy. Um, uh, the most common are violations of policy are they're empirical papers. Well, we don't we don't publish empirical papers. So, anytime they report the results of an empirical finding or empirical study, we don't uh, we don't publish those papers. Uh, the second most common, um, death reject is um, papers that are just literature reviews. That's a judgment call because you can have a paper that is uh, twenty percent literature review and eighty percent new contributions to the literature, and that's fine. Uh, 50/50 is a little more complicated. Little more, uh, more, uh, not sure how that's going to fall, but papers that are strictly literature reviews, those get desk rejected pretty quickly. Then the third uh, big category are papers that are not well connected to the management literature. Uh, AMR is very highly cited. Uh, its its um, impact citation rates are very high. Uh, AMR is a highly rated journal, pretty much in every management field and related fields, and um, so people want to publish in AMR, which I'm happy about, but, uh, you know, we have, we sometimes get papers that are really uh, designed for a finance journal or economics journal. Uh, I just re- recently we re- desk rejected one that was a really interesting analysis of the relationship between some macroeconomic variables and inflation, which I think is an extremely important topic, but not in the management literature. So uh, those get desk rejected. Um, I... Um, do not make, uh, with one exception, I'll explain in a second, I do not make substantive judgments about rejections, uh, deaths rejects at that that first stage. Um, My entire model for running AMR is based on the assumption that the diversity uh, of theory and intellectual tradition in the field of management is so diverse that no one person is in a position to be able to judge all of the quality uh, and not sufficiently to be able to make those kinds of desk reject decisions on substantive grounds the one exception is if it's a if it's a paper in uh, entrepreneurship or sorry if strategy or entrepreneurship probably mostly strategy that's I feel I know it reasonably well and I will make uh, a few of those substantive judgments to sort of keep the the reviewing load on my associate editors at a modest level, but besides that, I I am only screening for policy violations, not for um, substantive ground, on substantive grounds. Then the papers then go out to the associate editors um, um, once they pass that first screen, and then the associate editors then make substantive decisions about desk reject and they desk reject approximately another 10% of the papers. So about 35% of the papers get desk rejected, 25% for policy violations, 10% for substantive. Like this paper is simply too far away from being publishable that it doesn't make sense for us to send it out to reviewers and well, uh, waste their time on a paper that is simply not sufficiently developed to be able to benefit from their views. We're we're pretty generous, by the way. We we send most papers out for reviews, So a lot of and, and, and even papers that are extremely unlikely to be ultimately published in, in AMR, we'll still send them out because um, uh, it's part of a developmental process. We want to try to help build theory capabilities. Uh, of those that then are sent out, oh, roughly a third get a revise and resubmit, and then, um, and then after that, well, I can't do the arithmetic in my head, but then you get to the two to three percent acceptance rate right after that. So, so
0: after uh, getting accepted in the first round, uh, or at least not rejected at uh, the first round, the chances of being accepted on on the subsequent rounds is it, good or even in the... In the
1: it, it goes up. It goes up. The, the, the other thing that you need to understand about AMR and the current editorial policy is that um, we don't send the paper out to... Rev- we generally don't send a paper out to uh, reviewers past the second round. Uh, and, uh, and the logic here is that reviewers are the... Um, are advisory to the associate editors. And so uh, we think that we can get most if not all of the advice we need about how to improve the paper in the first and second rounds of reviews that doesn't mean that if you get to the second round your paper is automatically accepted um, uh, in fact um, it, it often goes through multiple rounds with uh, the associate editor who works directly with the authors to try to improve the paper and there's no guarantee that this will lead to acceptance but um, but that, our goal is to try to, after the second round, work directly with the, with the authors to try to improve the paper. So I, I'm finishing up the paper right now. I'm reviewing, I review, uh, a subset of papers, uh, whenever an associate editor submits a paper uh, that, that he or she is a co-author, I review those papers. And then if there's uh, conflicts of interest, I also review those papers and I'm just reviewing a paper. We finished reviewing a paper here this last week that fit in one of those categories and, uh, we, we had two rounds of review. We had three reviewers. One was very negative, Two were very positive. Um, the paper improved dramatically, I think, in the second, by the second round. And then uh, I went through three rounds as the uh, associate editor with those authors, uh, improving the paper. I, I hope we improved the paper. I think we improved it quite a bit. Um, I think the authors would agree and, and, and now just accepted that paper. So it went three additional full rounds of review just with me uh, in development. We do radical things though in that re- in that review process. Really strange, weird technologies like we actually talk to people on the telephone. You know, and it's, 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 I thought this is 21st century. We might as well go crazy and do something like that. But uh, and so uh, it's, it, we try to we try to get to the world where it's less about guess what the editor is trying to say and really trying to communicate directly. So it works out pretty well. Do you have a limited term? Yeah, I have a. Th- three-year appointment, um, and uh, which ends in, on July 1st, not that I'm counting the days or anything. but
0: Why did you feel compelled to work as an AMRs Editor-in-Chief? I mean, you were a very, very accomplished researcher, and probably you accepted the job, or you applied for the job, because you wanted to see something accomplished.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: What's your professional uh, challenge in, in getting that?
1: So first of all, um, AMR has been a very important part of my personal career. I, I can't remember if it, I have eight or 12 or something like that publications in AMR. Fair number. And um, some of them have been uh, uh, pretty influential in, in my career. So I have a sense of obligation to the journal um, because it has been important for me and for the field of strategy more generally. Um I I was cons- I've been concerned that there was a perception among uh, some management scholars that AMR is had had become primarily either a more micro journal maybe or an organizational behavior journal or a, an organization theory journal. Um, you know, it's 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 those things. Those, it, I think everyone always feels like uh, when. The editor in chief is not in their area of research, that so the journal radically shifts in a different direction. But um, I actually um, did some analysis, and 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 um, there was a uh, there was a drift in AMR towards more micro papers um, over the last several years. Uh, in, in making those observations, I am not in any way criticizing the editorial work that was done on those papers. Nor am I criticizing the papers; they are fine papers. Nor am I suggesting that micro papers are unimportant in AMR. They are actually an essential part of of the overall uh, what we do. So uh, that's so those are uh, so I don't want to in any way be understood as criticizing, but I was concerned to make sure that we that AMR reflected the full intellectual diversity of uh, of the academy management, which is incredibly broad. And so I, uh, I in my, um, they asked you to write a a letter that summarizes your strategy for the journal. So in my strategy statement, I talked about the importance of having a very senior, internationally recognized, intellectually diverse um, uh, panel of associate editors, and I think that's something we've accomplished. So. And we actually have data now. That we have data in terms of number of submissions. After publications, there's always a lag, a one or two year lag in actual publications. But if you uh, look at um, submissions, um, uh, submissions uh, in traditional areas of strength, like organizational behavior, who remain pretty much constant, which has been great. Organization theory is down a little bit, but, but probably not statistically significant. But at least so. uh, strategy is slightly up. Uh, But then some areas are really significantly up, like human resources is up. Entrepreneurship is up from almost zero to now the third largest um, area of submissions. Um, International management was up. Uh, When I was trying to recruit an international management associate editor, um, I talked to several people in the international field who thought that uh, AMR had a policy of not publishing international business papers. Well... We do not have such a policy, and, uh, and our submissions rates are up there as well. Uh, organizational change in design is up, although we had some really good editors in, there in the past. Uh, that has been increasing too. So I think um, the data show that we actually have seen a pretty systematic increase in the intellectual diversity of the papers submitted to the Academy of Management Review. And that will show up in the long run. It'll take, you know, we have backlogs and things to deal with and special theory forms. But in the long run, that will uh, lead to uh, the kind of intellectually diverse AMR that represents the initial diversity of the entire Academy of Management. Um, And that, of course, includes uh, a really strong representation in organizational behavior and organization theory. So, I was reading one of
0: those editorial letters yes, that you...
1: Yeah, from the editors, yes.
0: From the editors. And um, one of those, you mentioned that you had eight areas mapping into divisions uh, from the AOM, comprising 80% of the membership. Correct. And there are some areas I, I, I don't know, I haven't uh, written those down, but you mentioned several of them in your previous response. But I noticed that there's no... Operations and Supply Chain Management Department or Associate Editor related to Operations and Supply Chain Management, why would it be that?
1: So uh, it's an interesting challenge to figure out how to, so the the goal of representing intellectual diversity in the AMR uh, uh, Associate Editors is a nice goal, and it's a goal I've had. But then how do you operationalize that, how do you actually make that happen? So what I decided to do is look at the actual distribution of membership in the different divisions of the academy. And, um, and it turns out that um, almost 90%, uh, now it's my uh, like 86% of the Academy members have at least one membership in one of the eight largest of the Academy divisions. Um, and uh, I don't have that list in front of me, but I think I could probably recreate most of them. But it's the one, OB is the largest, strategy is the second largest. Entrepreneurship and OMT are sort of you know, fighting for number three at this point in terms of membership. HR is pretty big. Um, information uh, 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 technology management is pretty big. So you just go down the list, change management is on the list. The only one that is that is relatively large that is not included in the my AMR list is the uh, research methods division, which doesn't seem to be directly relevant to AMR, at least not as relevant to AMR. Um so uh knowing that I couldn't have a um editor- uh, panel of associate editors as, that equal the n- number of um divisions in the academy, which I think are over twenty over twenty five so I had to make some choices and so one of the choices that got made was um that operations management is not on the, does not have a direct representative now that said. My guess is that a fair number of operations management people also have memberships in one of the eight divisions that are reflected in the panel of AEs. Um, most more importantly, uh my goal was that it would that that an operations management person who adopted a particular theoretical perspective, say they were uh, supply chain management, for example, there's a lot of transaction cost economics in supply chain management, right? Uh, A lot of people use that theoretical lens. Um, They would look to uh, the panel of AEs and they would see, oh, look at that. There's Joe Mahoney and Heli Wang who know a lot about transaction cost economics and so would feel comfortable about nominating either Joe or Heli as an associate editor. Uh, or if they took a more institutional perspective on supply chain management, I'm just choosing supply chain management as one topic here. Um, if they took a more institutional, comparative institutional, then, then they would say, well, there's Heather Haveman and Joel Baum who know a lot about institutional theory and its implications. Or if they took a more motivational understanding, of how do you, how do you actually get supply chain to cooperate in a global environment? Well, Christina Gibson, who is an o b scholar but studies international teams, they wouldn't feel comfortable nominating her so the sense is what I'm trying to suggest is that uh, while the the I chose the associate editors to be representative of particular divisions, I also chose people who are established interdisciplinary broad scholars, uh, all of whom have made significant theoretical contributions in their areas of work and all of whom will be widely recognized across the different fields in the academy. Um, I also hold open the possibility that if if, if, there's, a, if there's a paper that simply that has, it seems to have potential but doesn't fit very well with any uh, particular associate editor, then I would take that role as the associate editor and I would just, we would just do it on a one-off basis. So that's also a possibility. But but we get we get operations and management papers, but normally they they don't have a problem finding an associate editor that they feel comfortable with.
0: About this uh, idea of finding the soci- associate editor, so uh, when the author has the oppor- or the authors have the opportunity to suggest a particular associate editor that would fit uh, would be a good fit for their, their paper that would be in the there's a submission in the submission process there is any button
1: that they select or in, in Yeah there's a button where you you can nominate two some people nominate three associate editors and um, in fact you're you're required to nominate an associate editor. it's, it's a requirement um, now um and I, what I what we say in the frequently asked questions is that I would say ninety percent of the time we go with the nominated associate editor. Sometimes that doesn't happen because of uh, workload issues. I mean, I, I I have to be able to spread out the workload equally across my associate editors, and there's no reason that uh, an author would know that what the what the particular demand is. Um, it, it's also uh, much less frequently, but it does happen when. Um, My read on the potential contribution of the paper is different than the author's read of the potential contribution of of the paper. And so, for example, I had a paper that um, asked the question, why are so many strategic management concepts uh, presented in uh, visual ways, using graphs and charts and pictures? That's an interesting question. Um, And the nominated author, uh, associate editors were... Associators in strategy, but as I read the paper, its actual contribution wasn't in strategy. It was actually in more in cognition. That is, how do we think about some complex um, complex concepts, and how do we re- represent those in ways that are accessible, and why is some well, in some ways represented more effective than others? That uh, and it happened to be about strategy concepts, but but the theoretical contribution was about I thought was about. Uh, was about uh, cognition, so I sent it to a micro editor. Interestingly, both the authors and the micro editor wrote me back and said, "I don't understand why I had this paper." And so I explained it to them. And they both said, "Oh, you you might be right." So, um, so that, that that's pretty unusual, but um, but it can happen. Uh, but that, where I make a different substantive judgment than the uh, the authors, um, I also have the advantage now having worked with these associate editors for. Over two years, I, I really understand their tastes, their skills, their preferences, and so I also bring a slightly different perspective to the table than a, than an author might have. But uh, but like I said, those are those are those are the uh, on the margin. Ninety uh, percent of the time, the the associate you request is the associate you're going to get. So.
0: So uh, how do you manage the journal in the month to month operations uh, do you use any KPIs do you do you check any uh, uh, performance measures downloads citations other type of analytics
1: so we we uh, so there's there's operational details and then there's sort of outcome so let's talk about outcome measures first like uh, downloads and citations Uh, I do not manage the journal to maximize either citations or downloads. Um, We manage the journal to try to change the nature of the conversations in uh, management theory to either enhance them or to create new conversations. And um, that said, if you create really interesting conversations, generally the downloads are high and uh, the citations are high. So that's the way we work. It is we we uh, we, we the, the citation count, downloads are what they are. They're very high. We're excited about that, but but that's not the objective function. And, and it's not that our editorial decisions are not made. Wow, we should accept this paper because it will get a lot of downloads. Trust me, that does not happen. Okay. Uh, or should it. I think that's a deep, deeply problematic. Operationally, we're, I'm mostly interested in uh, making sure that we get timely reviews back. That's, that's what we can do mostly uh, from, uh, from my perspective. And so I, uh, I watch for uh, reviews that are late. Either the reviewers are late or the associate editors are late. And if it goes, uh, goes too late, 30 days or more beyond the due date, uh, I start writing personal emails um, because that's just, you know, so it's like the editor is now on your tail. You better get to work. So for some reason, that seems to work. I'm not sure why, but, but normally people, oh, I'm sorry, Jay, I'll get this back to you, which is great, and it, actually they do. so so. But operationally, we're much more interested in that. Uh, I also, and certainly in the first year, I also used to randomly select uh, letters that were written by my associate editors just to make sure that they were a substantive in nature, and we're really providing guidance. And I still do some of that, but not as much now that I have, uh, I always had great confidence in my editors, my associate editors, and, and that confidence that was completely fulfilled with the letters they were writing, which were uh, thoughtful and engaging and developmental. Uh, never easy, very challenging, but nevertheless uh, extremely uh, professional. So, but I still do that periodically. Those are the operational things that I do month to month, actually week to week.
0: Would you have the number of downloads
1: that you had in 2018, just as a a reference? I actually do, 7,278,332. It's a big number. (laughs) Yes, it is, I'm used to to a a
0: more modest um, values from, from OM Journal, so.
1: So you'll find out all, all everything like citations and um, downloads. Uh, sometime in the last uh, twelve to eighteen months, the total number of citations to articles published in AMR just went beyond one million citations. So I mean, so all the numbers are like through the roof. <laughs> so, I mean, so yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's running a large operation, right? it's a it's a large operation and and all by the way all that is is a testimony to the the quality of the editors and the associate editors and the authors that have used amr as an outlet for the for the last 10, 10 15 20 years and uh yeah it's it you know we we don't we don't let that go over our head because we can screw it up we can still screw it up if we really try hard uh so we're careful and and professional and other things to make it work but yeah Over uh, 7.3 million downloads last year. Last year, one year.
0: How do you compare the global versus the U.S. reach of the journal? Do you have a breakdown by country or region of the downloads?
1: So, um, just based on percentages, uh, this says views, which is different than downloads, I guess. I'm not sure what this is. All views by country. But in any case, um, 21% United States, 11.5% UK, 8.2% Eight point two percent China. That number has increased dramatically. This is from 2018 data. If you had, if this data was in 2000, for example, we would have probably gotten just a handful of citations and views from China. Australia's next. That's happening for all journals. Uh, they, they have the experience I All right, across the board. Yeah, but what's interesting is that there's a mythology that um, in order to um, write for and use amr you have to be really a good uh writer in english it is the case that you know english is the language and most of our our papers are not mathematical although that's possible certainly but um and what this suggests is both our number of submissions and the and the downloads and the way the journal is used is that um is that uh, uh, that's becoming less of an issue over time. Uh, it, is, it is the case, you have to be able to write well, that is for sure. But uh, getting co-authors who are native English speakers or using editors, those kinds of things, we're beginning to see a lot more um, uh, foreign people who, for whom English is not their first language being able to successfully write for AMR.
0: Do we have any open calls for special issues or future calls that you'd like to highlight at this point?
1: We only have one open call left, um, and it's closing pretty soon. Our first special issue was um, on 19 uncertainty and its impact in management uh, theory broadly. And that generated over 80 submissions. Mm-hmm. Our, um, the editor-in-chief on that is uh, Professor Sharon Alvarez, Sharon Alvarez, who's at the University of Pittsburgh. And she has a team of really outstanding uh, associate editors, um, some of whom are... AMR associate Editors and some of whom are Associated Editors just for the special issue. And then we have another special issue that just closed um, uh, on the role of theory in management research. This one is um, headed up by three uh, AMR AEs, Joe Mahoney, uh, Heather Haveman, and uh, Beta Mannix. Um, and um, it just closed like last week, and I think we had 72 submissions, which is really exciting. a lot of work for those guys. I, I'm, I'm actually shifting some of their normal editorial work away from them because of the number of papers they have to deal with all of a sudden. The only other um, the only other um, special issue that we have uh, still open, and I believe it closes at the end of October. Uh, don't quote me on that, but' there's, uh, it's on the website is uh, one that I am uh, the chief editor of, working closely with Subi Rangan, who's from INSEAD, and some other associate editors. Um, and that's on new theories of, um, of um, market-based capitalism, sort of uh, trying to change the, in, in, get the field of management involved in conversations about um how capitalism should operate, why it is uh, perceived as being a failure in some in some by some people, a massive success by other people. Uh, what are the implications of that? So that those um, all those essay, all those special issues were were introduced with a call for papers in the Academy of Management Review, and then there was a from the editor essay by the editors of the special issue, uh, describing the, that special issue in more detail. And uh, I think that's one of the reasons why we've been. So far, so far, pretty successful in attracting uh, submissions. So,
0: well, I understand that you then don't need to publicize the papers. You don't have any effort in the journal to publicize the papers. The papers sell sell by themselves.
1: <laughs> sell by themselves. Um, so, the academy, first of all, the academy of management has um, some initiatives to um, take the work that is developed either in any of the journals. And then to make that accessible to uh, managerial audiences, so um, so some of that is already being done for us in terms of marketing it to broader audiences. Um, the other thing we do is once the paper is accepted, it's it's um, uh, published online, and I think that's the way. I, I I don't think we have the data to demonstrate this, but just from conversations I've had, I think that's how people actually read the papers now. Is they is they, every month they go to the AMR website and they see a paper and they read it. And I think that's why the downloads go up so much, because people see it. And they say, I want to download that paper. Because it may not actually get published in a formal journal for a year or 18 months, That depending on the backlog at a given point in time. But you can read the paper immediately. In fact, we get dialogue commentaries on papers that haven't been formally published yet, except online. Someday we'll get to a world where uh, publishing online is publishing. But we're not there yet for a variety of contractual reasons. But
0: I, I've, I've been uh, interviewing one of the editors of these uh, journals, of uh, operations management journals, and they don't print anymore the, the, the journals. Yeah. They, or, or at least they don't send anymore the, the journals. They, they're part of a society and they don't send anymore yeah. the journals. And, and I don't get anymore the journals from the Academy of Management in print anymore.
1: Yeah, you can't.
0: You have to pay for a separate subscription of the print version.
1: I think that's like, um, we're finally catching up to the 21st century here. Um, uh, Well, the contractual constraints are, uh, um, there were contracts written with libraries and distribution operations years ago that include print copies. And so... We're certainly constrained by those, but I, I, my expectation is, and I'm not involved in those negotiations, but my expectation is that over time we'll see less and less of that.
0: I subscribe to the email newsletter, so I get an email every ever so often that says available before print. So I that's right. That's right. Don't have a page number, but that, that works.
1: No, I, and actually, my, and and we're seeing more and more citations to papers that are. In the pre-printed and the online stage, so I, I think that that's 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 the future. We just have to figure out how to facilitate that that over time.
0: So you don't gather any evidence for the impact on managerial uh, audience. You, you don't. I mean, it's not the target for AMR, but do you have any idea on how uh, managers benefit from 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 the papers?
1: Yeah, I think we actually have a, a pretty good sense of that, although. Um, there's, a, there's an ongoing debate about what's the best way to measure managerial impact. And some of the current measures that are proposed, I think, are, are uh, can be misleading. So, for example, um, number of times your article is mentioned in the Wall Street Journal. That's almost always a function of how skilled a particular PR person is at a particular college of business rather than the quality of the paper, per se. And that's not a criticism. I'm glad for those people, but I, I don't want to confuse that. Um, so uh, uh, so instead um, what I do is I tend to look at um, two indicators of our impact in AMR the first is um, has to do with teaching it's ironic I know that we would talk about teaching in this context of a journal but um, we teach around the world millions of students a year um, in business and the content of that we teach them most of it comes from places like AMR. Not all from AMR. I'm not going to exaggerate. But but AMR has a big impact on that. Um, And so uh, I've been doing uh, this business school professor thing since 1980. And I can tell you the difference between the way the typical firm was managed in 1980 and the way a typical firm that I work with is managed now is night and day. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But one of the reasons for that, I think, is the conversations that have changed because of the theoretical work that is taking place in places like AMR. So, uh, so I look to our students and our impact on our students as, uh, as an important indicator of manageable impact. The second way is actually a very personal way. In addition to uh, being a scholar and, and writing and editing, I also do a fair amount of consulting. And uh, when I also talk to my other friends who consult, um, professors who consult, We all start with the same basic story, which is when I go to my clients, I tell them, I will never know as much about your industry as you know, and I will never know as much about your organization as you know, and I don't have a staff of 100 newly minted MBAs that I can work 20 hours a day. I don't bring any of those resources to the table. So what do I bring to the table? I know the theories really well. And what will happen is you will ask me a question, and I will I will see that question in the light of a theory that I know really well, and I will be able to answer your question, or ask additional questions, or engage in a conversation with you, based on my the, 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 my understanding of the theory that is um, that can be extremely useful and deeply insightful. So uh, so not only do our students find apparently find these theories to be incredibly useful. But when I've actually used them in my consulting practice, they are incredibly useful uh, tools to, to help understand a situation that's going on in a firm. So um, I know there's a, uh, there's a lot of uh, people who think that we should include uh, management implications sections in AMR and other kinds of papers. I'm not a supporter of that in general. Um, I don't think the unit of analysis of, uh, for management implications is usually the paper, I think it's usually the conversation that's being changed, and that's multiple papers at multiple locations over a long period of time. There are some times when a single paper will make an enormous impact, but that's that's a, that's an exception. The rule is incremental changes over time. That as as we look back in the past, we say, you know, we think about strategy differently. We think about leadership differently. We think about uh, managing globally differently than we did 15 years ago, 10 years ago, and uh, and, and I think that we're part of that conversation.
0: I saw that um, from the editor's uh, piece that was published in July 2019 about phenomenal theories. And how different is phenomenal theories
1: from empirical research? Uh, let me give you an example, a personal example. So, um... I, I wrote this paper recently. I was originally submitted to AMR, but I had to withdraw it once it became the editor, obviously. So it was recently published in SMJ uh and it titled something like Why Resource Based Theories Model of Profit Appropriation Must Adopt a Stakeholder Perspective. And I spent my first um many dozen 20 years as an academic, 30 years as an academic, Arguing that um, stakeholder theory was not a particularly useful way of thinking about the world, um, and then as something started happening. I, I started. I was working with companies that I, I respected a great deal. Uh, that the people are, were clearly very smart. They were very successful, and they were managing using sort of stakeholder logic. And uh, so um, I had a couple of options. One was I could conclude that all these people were stupid. That I was the only smart one in the whole world. Or, I could try to understand why it would be that you would start thinking about a stakeholder logic. So, the, the question of under what conditions would stakeholder logic actually make sense in an organization, um, that question was derived from phenomena. Now, if I, if I derive the theory from phenomena as well, that's, in, that's inductive research and AMR doesn't publish inductive research. But if the questions are are embedded in empirical phenomena, but the, the theory is derived from either other theory or from new sets of assumptions and new new propositions that come out, then uh, that's something that AMR would be very excited in. So, um, like I said, I, I I had to withdraw that paper from AMR because it didn't get published in SMJ. And when you read the paper, it's very analytical. I mean, it's a, it uses a lots of different economic theories to make the point. But um, but the phenomena that I was observing is what actually led me to uh, begin even thinking about the question.
0: And what about the use of other nonverbal artifacts or in theory building, like cases, models, simulations, or even interventions in organizations? If I if I make an intervention in an organization and I, you know, a consulting
1: project or anything like that, and sure, so. Um, each one of those deserve a special comment. So, for example, cases, um, if it's inductive, um, theory building, so that you use a detailed case analysis to build theory, that's empirical work. We don't publish those. Okay? Um, if uh, you use cases deductively as a way to test theory, that's empirical work. We don't publish those. If you use cases as examples, multiple cases as an example, that helps clarify a theoretical point, not as a substitute for theoretical reasoning, but as a way to clarify theoretical reasoning. Then we might be able to publish those. Um, so that's a judgment call that we that we go through. Um, but we will not we will not publish traditionally inductive or deductive or abductive work. That's not what we do. But if you use cases, uh, so interesting enough, we'll, we're we're happy we're. We're we're happy to use historically have been used examples taken from the popular business press. You know, IBM did it this way, or AT and T did this, or whatever. But we're so it it follows for me that we should also be very willing to use examples from cases that you've written yourself. Um, Just cite the but not as a substitute for theoretical logic, but as a supporting example. So that's cases. You said simulations and mathematical models. Um, in principle, AMR has always been open to simulations and mathematical models, but that has never been made explicit. There are examples of math models. I have a very simple little math model in one AMR special issue that I have with two co-authors, Allison and Ty Mackey, from some years ago. Um, so in principle, that's always been possible. We made it explicit. Uh, we are indifferent as to the language you use to express your theory, to develop your theory, you can do verbal theory, you can do mathematical mathematics, or you can use simulations, and they're all the same. Um, all, simulations are not empirical work, they are numbers derived from a theory represented by a particular set of equations. But, that's, but you're not talking to anybody. You're not collecting data on anything. You're actually, it's all derived from the theory itself. So there's a lot of misunderstanding. And we have several papers going through the review process now that I expect some will, will come forward and get accepted that are either mathematical models or simulations. Now we have some requirements on mathematical models and simulations that you don't have in other journals those are addressed in the frequently asked questions part of the AMR website. So, for example, um, in the mathematical model, the contribution can't be the math, sorry. So, if you, if you, um, if you take a verbal theory and make it a mathematical model, and don't extend the theory at all, except by making it mathematical, that's a great contribution, it's just not an AMR story, not a contribution, because we're looking for a contribution to theory, and if you just like, translated it from verbal theorizing to mathematical theorizing, that may have become more precise, but if it doesn't, it hasn't added to the theoretic theory, we're, we're not going to publish that. Um, we also want um, most of the math to be in the appendix, not to be in the body of the paper. Uh, if I, I, my my friends include myself, I have I, I do some math modeling. Um, I say if you, if you can't explain the intuition of a, of a lemma, then you don't really understand your lemma. So so put the lemma in, put the proof in the appendix, and explain why it's important uh, in the body of the paper. So and so, but those are all described again in the in the frequently asked questions. Uh, so, all those are different languages for applying or developing theory that, that we would be open to. So, and what about interventions? Consulting? Okay. So, intervention is an interesting question. Um, okay, to the extent that an intervention was used as, that's it, like a case, to the extent that it was used as an example of, that helps you clarify conceptual points, I think we would be open to that. Uh, we would not be open to an intervention where it was a uh, pre and post, and you were seeing how well the theory predicted the outcome, because that would be an empirical test of theory. But if again, using that same logic that we use with case studies, I think that we would be open to um, a, theory, a theory of intervention and organizational change that included examples from perhaps multiple case studies. Uh, but they would have to be short, and, and it would have to be clear the theory is not derived from the examples, but is explained by the examples. Those are judgment calls, obviously, but uh, but and I actually I would like to see some of those papers. I think the great under under one of the great understudied areas in management is uh, organizational change and how that happens and occurs. We have a associate editor from uh, John Amos who is in the uh, in that area. He gets a lot of really good papers. I expect to see some more good stuff coming out there.
0: I have uh, I have asked uh, several. Uh, operations and supply chain management journals, editors to send me questions. I won't name them all here. Oh, send me questions. Send
1: you questions for me. Yes.
0: (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Because I interviewed them and I said, okay, I'm going to interview the editor of AMR. What would you ask him? And um, uh, many of them basically revolve around the same idea. I mean... um, there's a paper published in the JOM from, from Jack Meredith and, and, and uh, Pilkington in 2018 that says the exchange of knowledge between operations management and other fields and, and, and shows that operations management cite 20 times more papers from from other fields, especially general management, as opposed to uh, papers in general management citing Papers like that. So I have several editors asking, for example, Mark Pagel, the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Supply Chain Management, why OSCM scholars look to general management for ideas and inspiration, but the reverse does not seem to occur. Um, Subodhi Kumar from the Production and Operations Management uh, asking, how can AOM journals reach out to the OM community and vice versa? And so um, uh, Walter Zinn, which was our colleague at the Ohio State University, Said hi and, and ask, Hi, it, <laughs> and ask it. Do you foresee, foresee that in the near future OMSCM research might either gain or lose space in the general management literature and why? So, we have several
1: editors asking, um, sure stuff like that. So, I, I've, actually, I've actually personally uh, published in supply chain management, by the way. So, so. <laughs> yeah, I know it's one of the top downloads from the journal, is the, the paper we wrote. So, um there are a variety of fields. In, so, first of all, uh, there is an operations management division in the Academy of Management, and and since the Academy of Management made the decision at some point to include operations management in the uh, in the division structure of the academy, then AMR has an obligation to publish papers in that area. Um, that's been my view. Uh, if if it's in the Academy of Management, then. Um, we we should we 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 will we will we will not turn down any paper from uh, anyone in who is publishing in one of the recognized areas in the Academy of Management, based solely on the fact that it doesn't fit with some vision of what AMR is or should be. If it's an AOM, it's it's eligible. That doesn't mean we'll publish it because they could be terrible too. But that's a, but it's eligible to be reviewed. Okay, we'll take it seriously. Um, and that was certainly applied to operations management uh, there was a time in my own uh, evolution as a scholar what I would say that some aspects of operations management were extremely important in in uh, the field strategy so um, I in, in the 80s for example when we were first learning about um, uh, lean manufacturing and quality and those kinds of things I think for a, for a long time um five or six years, the, there was a the, the relationship between how does one manage a factory and, and how does one position oneself strategically were really closely linked questions. Certainly in my practice, that was something that I was dealing with a lot. So, um, over time, the challenge that operations management has had is the challenge that a lot of uh, areas in the academy have had, which is um, developing uh, their own theory you guys, I think, have a really well-developed research quest- set of research questions and a phenomena you're interested in. But, uh, but I have you developed a theory that is unique to operations management? Um, um, this is a challenge that, is, that was faced by the international management people and I think hasn't been fully addressed, which is, is international management a unique discipline with its own theoretical tools or is it really applied strategy, is applied OB, where you take those theories and sprinkle a little bit of globalization, a little bit of cultural differences, and and um, and if it's the latter, then the citation is going to be weighted very much, much more, much more citation from global back to those base disciplines than the other way. And I think that's where OMT might be now. I you you know better than I do. Uh, what is that? You have a unique set of theories. So once you develop a unique set of theories, then as a strategy scholar, as an OB scholar, as an OMT scholar, I may go, wow, you know, I hadn't really thought about operations meaning that. And that changes my whole concept of what leadership is. And then, then we start seeing the, the, the ratios on citations switch around. So um, so we'll see how that evolves over time. It is the case you guys have a well-defined phenomena uh, I don't know, I'm, I'm uh, admitting my ignorance here, I don't know the extent to which you have a distinctive theoretical tradition. Uh, you, you look, where, the, where are the distinctive theoretical traditions in management? And OB has several, many. Uh, OMT has several. Strategy has several. Uh, international business is struggling. Entrepreneurship maybe is developing them now. Um, Human resources, interestingly, may actually be developing some right now that are pretty distinct. Uh, So certainly, for example, the research on strategic human capital is now having a really big impact in strategy. Um, I have a couple of papers in that area, so I know a little bit about that particular link. And some of the leading scholars in strategic human capital research are HR scholars by tradition. By training, but are now speaking to a uh, a broader audience. So, so so it it is the case that we don't have a well, we don't go through someone's um, citations and say ah uh, we need more citations from AMR or we need more citations to this class. We don't do any of that stuff. Uh, so if if the if the ratios are going to change as you've described, it is going to be because. People in your field are writing the kinds of papers that are uh, making uh, making suggestions and creating ideas that uh, are not uh, are not available in their current you know, those people's current areas of work. So write good theory, and you'll start getting cited. Cited. Actually, it's also true if you if you come up with an empirical analysis that is really interesting and counterintuitive and surprising, you'll also get cited. But the extent that you are studying a particular phenomenon with theories that are developed and methods that are developed someplace else, then the the ratios will never turn around.
0: I think that you that you cover uh, several of the questions that I had for, from from other editors. I'd like to highlight only one question from Tom Thomas Goldsby from JBL was your colleague as well from Ohio. So said he says. Uh, Jay was instrumental in forwarding the RBV theory of competitive strategy. Clearly, SEM researchers have embraced it in a big way to frame and explain hypothesized relationships in their inquiries. Does he have any suggestions of limits to RBV or aspects of its application that he sees as ill-suited
1: to SCM inquiry? I know that you were not an expert in SCM, but I'm not an SCM. I don't pretend to be, and and that's why I, I, I mean, I remember I, my whole theory of how to manage AMR is based on the assumption that I don't know everything. <laughs> so, so I would if if uh, I would almost if I, if I was going to write such a paper, I would certainly get someone who knew about uh, operations and those kinds of things as a co-author. Uh, so there are there are. Um, uh, boundary conditions to resource-based theory. I don't think people spend a lot of time talking about them, but they're actually quite important and they could be relevant in the, in the context you've described. Um, one of them is that um, resource-based theory t- tends to operate better when product and factor markets are reasonably competitive. That That is, they're not characterized by oligopoly or monopolies. So, when you're operating an oligopoly or monopoly, then you probably should be using a different theory of how to generate economic profits than resource-based theory. One that focuses on raising industry-level barriers to entry and and, and punishing uh, defection and oligopolistic collusion and those kinds of things. Uh, and and there are theories out there. That's mostly in the positioning world that sort of Porter sort of talks about. Um, and if you're operating, if if your you know, supply chain, for example, is operating in that kind of marketplace, then uh, resource-based theory may not be the most applicable in that setting. I had a client once. Uh, they called me to do some just executive ed. And, you know, I normally go up and do a, you know, a resource-based shtick and leave because that's what I do. But over lunch, I listened to them. And this particular client, I won't share the name of the company, obviously. You'll see in a second why. Um they, uh, they had, um, there were two companies in North America, this is a, a consumer product, uh, and between the two companies, they had 90% market share, 90% market share, and um, the rest of the market share was distributed among 100 little, little companies. And um, both had well-established brand names. One company uh, had 90% of its sales east of the Mississippi, and the other company had 90% of its sales west of the Mississippi. Now I, I'm a consumer of this particular product, and was I remember the first time I bought it, I said, "This is just bent metal. Why does it cost nine hundred dollars?" Right. Well, I think I know why it costs nine hundred dollars. Okay. Um, so resource-based theory is all about discovering your uh, your idiosyncratic capabilities and leveraging those to try to gain competitive advantage. That's not what these guys. In order from from a social welfare point of view, this may not be true, but from a profit-maximizing point of view. They're operating in a two- firm oligopoly and so they need to understand that and and what are the strategies you pursue in a two- firm oligopoly so for example, um, you, you can do innovation but it's slow and it's incremental and you announce a new product months in advance so that the competitor has an opportunity to bring out a similar product so you don't do product differentiation. Um, other things, for example, never, ever, 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 ever reduce price, you know. Um, um, and it turns out they were their 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 oligopolistic partner was having problems right at that moment. Uh, he had some manufacturing problems, and um, so a really, we had a really interesting conversation. Was should we attack this other firm now that they're weak? Or should we let them recover and reestablish our cooperative oligopoly? Level? Those are, those are not resource-based questions, okay? So, so, uh, and that's fine. You know, I'm not going to pretend that uh, if, 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 a theory applied in every circumstance, it would probably be tautologically correct. So it would be uninteresting. So, so, uh, those are some of the constraints that I look at. And the supply chain, you sometimes when you, supply chain just comes to mind as part of the ops area, but, if you have a um, if you're buying supplies from an oligopoly that that's a different set of challenges than if you're buying from a more competitive market in which case resource based logic plays a plays a larger role
0: and i think that one thing that uh, also he mentioned he mentions here in the f- follow up question is the fact that supply chain management is always tries trying to find ways to get competitive advantage from multiple organizations while
1: rbv is more Looking to one organization, I'm
0: not sure exactly how.
1: Well, that's historically the way it's been treated, but um, that's not necessarily that's not a that's not a logical characteristic of the, of theory. It's um, so in this uh, SMJ paper I mentioned to you, published in 2018, that takes a stakeholder perspective. It, it basically generalizes. Um, the, that argument that he makes about a single source of competitive advantage to recognize that competitive advantage is often not always but often is created because multiple firm a firm is able to attract resources from multiple suppliers more multiple sources and that there's a co specialization among those resources that is the it is the mechanism for generating economic profits so um, so it's not a it's not sort of well, well, it's easiest to think about it as uh, a firm and a resource, and that's the way we teach it maybe sometimes. But uh, the, there's a there's a multi-stakeholder um, generalization of the theory that that does not have that constraint. That, by the way, is actually that possibility is uh, is indicated in the first papers, but uh, that I wrote. But most, but that wasn't how it developed, and I don't understand that because the other cases simpler to think about and talk about, but the way firms actually operate is in multiple dimensions with multiple stakeholders, and getting them to cooperate in a way that allows a firm to generate an economic profit through the co-specialized resources they bring to the table. Not a lot about AMR in that last conversation, but it's fun.
0: <laughs> Jay, I think I've covered pretty much what I was expecting to hear here. Um, Good. Um, would you have anything that you'd like to add? No, I have to go to a meeting
1: here shortly, so the timing's good. Okay, so
0: <laughs> thank you very much. It was very good talking to you. I appreciate the fact that you took some time to talk to us. I know that you are very the busy. Problem. And the um, problem. And I'm sure our audience, the members of the operations and supply chain management division, will appreciate he- hearing from you.
1: Yeah, I'd I I want I want love to see more papers submitted from that division Okay. to AMR. Absolutely. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye.
0: Bye-bye. Listen to the Editors is an initiative of the Operations and Supply Chain Management Division of the Academy of Management. We post our interviews monthly in our division website. You can discuss any of the topics of this episode using our interactive tool, connect.aom.org. Using the discussion section of our site, you can also post suggestions for questions, journal editors you'd like to hear from, and requests for clarifications. You can also subscribe to our podcast in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or with the Podcast Addict app on Android. See you next month.